So we'll be reading Romans 6, verses 1 through 23. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set <clears throat> has been set free from sin. <clears throat> now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body, to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law but under grace. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations." For just as you once presented your members as slaves to to impurity and to lawlessness leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness leading to sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. What a perfect song to lead into this particular lesson today in Romans 6. And so if you would turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 6, and we'll actually look back for a minute at the last two verses of chapter 5. So if your page break is right there, just heads up. That song was perfect because the point of it is for us to focus on Jesus, our Lord, to center on Him. And that is what Paul is going to try to drive home for us today. We can get off base when we lose sight of Jesus, when, and we can go this way or that way and, and swerve and veer from the path He would have us on when we lose sight of Him. Shall we continue... In sin, Romans chapter 6, shall we continue in sin? 
Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Simply put, as I was saying, if we don't keep Jesus central, then we will get into trouble. So, with that in mind, Paul, that's the whole reason Paul is is taking Christians through the material that he presents in Romans 6. He deals there both with legalists and antinomians, and he does it by developing the doctrine of our union with Christ. There again, you see the, the centrality of having Christ in our focus, the one that we pursue, the one that we order our entire life and all of the parts of our life around. It must be around Jesus because we have been put into union with Him. Now, what the legalists had objected to was, were, well, it was pretty much everything in Romans 1 through 5, but in particular, what prompted Paul to write chapter 6 is what he said and what he knew they would think about what he said in Romans 5, verses 20 and 21. And I want to read those and we'll, we'll come back to them again in a minute. But So after talking about our justification by faith, he says in Romans 5.20, And the law came in that the transgression might increase, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, or grace superabounded. That as sin reigned in death, even so in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus our Lord. The legalists objected to that because it's justification by faith, which leads into sanctification by grace through faith as well. But what he's going to do is show them that union with Christ, what they were afraid of is is that, well, you know, Paul, if you teach that, then, then people are going to think they don't have to obey anymore. That they can just go on, you know, their life, their own merry way and do whatever they want. And they don't have to actually obey the Lord and His Word. Paul says, no, you misunderstand because union with Christ is going to prove that grace does not lead to lawlessness. Union with Christ proves that believers certainly will obey God. And so in Romans 6, Paul drives home this point. United with Christ, we have been set free from sin and are free to serve God in righteousness. And there's a lot in that. That's what he's going to develop here. So, <clears throat> united with Christ, we have been set free from sin and are free to serve God in righteousness. Last week, we focused more on <clears throat> the error of legalism and then some concerns of those who are not legalists but have some different views about the law. Today, we're going to study what's known as antinomianism. And that term, antinomianism, is used in different ways. And I want to walk us through three of those ways. The first two are misuses of that term. First, listen to how legalists use it. And it's interesting. I looked in Webster's to see what it would say. And they adopt the exact legalist definition of the word antinomian or the term antinomian. They say they define an antinomian 
as someone who believes that faith alone, not obedience to the moral law, is necessary for salvation. Now, does that bother you? <clears throat> now, most of the time, you know, the dictionary is pretty good. But why did they adopt? And they don't. They don't give you know uh, options one, two, and three for definitions. It was just a copy I had just had that one, and I thought, wow, that's interesting that they adopted the legalist definition of that. Well, by that definition, all of us here are antinomians. Paul is an antinomian, and Jesus is an antinomian. So, well, that's obviously not true. Okay. <clears throat> now. That first one, obviously wrong. But there's another one that is a misuse of the term. Some in our Reformed circles define it this way, something like this. An antinomian is anyone who doesn't agree with my understanding about the moral law. Okay, That is extremely common. When you talk with other brothers and sisters in Christ who are in our Reformed circles, our camp, if you will... That's how they would define it. We saw that last time, didn't we, with Rush Dooney talking about even John Calvin, of all people, called him, or he said he was, you know, there were hints of antinomianism in what Calvin said. Like, okay, if you know John Calvin, that's quite a stretch. What then is antinomianism? How should we use the term? Here is a short definition. Antinomianism is lawlessness. Remember what John said in 1 John 3, chapter 3, verse 4. Everyone who practices sin, that basically is it. They practice sin. He who practices sin also practices lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. It is practicing sin. It is not practicing the law. And law with a small l there, and we would say the law of Christ. A fuller definition is this. Antinomianism teaches that obeying the law of Christ is not necessary for believers. Okay, So you remember, we've defined the, the law of Christ as all of the moral law, which would include moral law that was under the old covenant, the law of Moses, and that was pulled forward into the new covenant, the law of Christ. Okay, and then Christ added some. Remember, the Old Testament doesn't say love your enemies, but Jesus said love your enemies. And then there's other, many other commands in the New Testament that weren't found in the Old Testament. And that's what the law of Christ is. So an antinomian, a, a true antinomian, teaches that obeying the law of Christ is not necessary if you're a believer. Okay, now I hope you see problems written all over that, right? So, there were two basic reasons why Paul wrote Romans 6. The first and primary reason is this. Legalists of his day, and here think the Judaizers, that's who they were, and they were saying, okay, Paul, I'm having real big problems with your belief in justification by grace through faith alone. Grace alone, faith alone. They had a problem with that. They said, no, it has to be, okay, you know, yeah, Jesus has come, and that's fine. We can do the grace and the faith thing, but... Salvation or works has to be part of our salvation. And then some of them would, would say, okay, maybe not that, but it has to be part of our sanctification. So the law is the works of the law is how we are sanctified. And so the legalists are charging Paul with antinomianism. When he said there at the end of chapter 5 that where, where sin increased or where it abounded, 
grace superabounded. Okay, so because grace always defeats sin. And so they are charging him with antinomianism, basically. I don't use that word, but that's what they were charging him with. They did not like that he was teaching salvation by grace alone. And that prompted him to write Romans 6. But he also knew that real antinomians will misuse his words to say, see, what Paul says is we're not under any kind of law. We're not under law at all. We don't have to obey anything or anyone because we're under grace. And, of course, they'll use verse 14 in chapter 6 as well to try to establish that error. So he's defending himself against the legalists and he's defending grace against the antinomians. So what does antinomianism look like? Well, one of the, the leading teachers was Zane Hodges, and he disputed the Reformed view, our view, that Paul treated good works as an inevitable outcome of true regeneration. Now, that's what we've been saying, right? Not only in this series, but also in our study of Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 and following, so that regeneration is going to produce good works. And then we looked at the, the gospel in Ephesians 2, 8, and 2, 8 through 10. So, we're saved by grace through faith, not as a result of works, but that regeneration that comes will produce works. Okay, that's what we say... He protested against that, saying Paul simply did not hold such a view of works. He's saying that new life might not produce obedience. The new life we have in Christ, he's saying, might not produce obedience. He claimed that there's a difference, and this is how he tried to establish it. He claimed that there's a difference between being a Christian and being a disciple. And he said, okay, everybody who's saved is a Christian, but not everybody is a disciple. Now, you may be thinking in terms like, well, chapter and verse, you know, because the Bible doesn't make those distinctions. For one, the term Christian in the New Testament is pretty much used... As, as a derogatory term for that's what they were called. And then Peter says, like, you know, well, if you suffer as a Christian, the way they call us Christian, you know, it's a good term and it's good to use. But nowhere does it say that there's any kind of uh, two classes of Christians. A Christian is one who's saved. That's everybody who's saved, but a disciple, he says, only refers to those who have committed themselves to obeying Jesus. He says, you know, that's a good thing to do. But he's, he, he says that being a disciple is optional. Being a disciple is optional. Well, I don't find that in Scripture. And that's certainly not what Paul teaches here in Romans 6, because he, he, he laid out for us justification by faith... And then he's going to show us how, in Romans 6 through 8, that will impact the believer. See, once we put our trust in Jesus, Romans 5, God declares us righteous. Right? None of us come to God and say, you know, I've done a really good job and I'm righteous. We, we can't say that. But because of what Jesus did and we put our faith in what Jesus did, then God declares us righteous. He puts the righteousness of Christ to our account, and he declares us righteous. But he goes on to say, where grace reigns, righteousness also reigns. 
And so Romans 6 through 8 lays out for us, as Cranfield called it, a life characterized by sanctification. And Cranfield and all of us in the Reformed camp would say that that is a necessary outcome. That is what will happen. Or the way John Murray would say it, and I don't have a, I'm just putting it in my own words. Paul shows us the sanctifying effects of justification. You see, so Paul says, okay, if you put your faith in in Christ, Romans 5, you are justified, declared righteous. But it doesn't stop there. That justification, or really, the justification brings regeneration, new life, being born again. And that is going to produce sanctification. Okay, the very nature of this this salvation that we have is going to produce sanctification. So Romans six falls into two parts. First, verses one through fourteen, being united with Christ, and that's the great theme here in the first fourteen verses that we are united with Christ. So being united with Christ, we have died to sin's power. And the first thing that Paul does in that is he objects to the antinomians' abuse of grace. He is saying, I don't teach the abuse of grace. And what do I mean by that? That is that, well, because I'm under grace, I don't have to obey. That's the abuse of grace. He, he's saying, I, didn't te- I don't teach that. And he's saying, and you should not abuse grace either. But as I said, his legalistic critics charged him with antinomianism for his gospel of grace. They were saying, no, no, you got to mix law in there. Paul responded with outrage. He's saying here it's absurd that if we died to sin, to think that we should continue in sin. He said it's absurd to think that. And so look again, starting in Romans 5.20 and back up to that. And the law came in that the transgression might increase. In other words, the law exposed sin in our hearts. But where sin increased, in other words, as the law kept exposing sin in us and sin was increasing, he says, grace abounded all the more that as sin reigned in death, as it used to, even so now grace might reign through righteousness. And you see that? So grace is reigning and it's reigning with righteousness. Okay? It's not... You know, reigning in unrighteousness. And that is to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And so Paul's going to kind of take that and he's going to expand upon it now in chapter 6. And so he's responding to his critics who say that, okay, Paul, what you're saying is antinomianism. He says, absolutely not. Verse 6, or chapter 6, verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that... Grace might increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? He's saying it's absurd to think that if you've died to sin, that you would just keep on living in it and that that would be somehow okay. And so he responded very strongly to that. Next, what he does in verses 3 through 10 is he argues that our union with Christ has broken sin's power. So he wants to show them, this is how, he's saying, this is how I support what I'm telling you. That we are in union with Christ. 
And that union with Christ has broken sin's power. And so he gives now four reasons why it's absurd to think that we could continue living in sin. First, we are in union with Christ. So verses 3 through 5. Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death in order that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For we have become united with him in the likeness of his death. Certainly, we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection. And so what Paul does here is he's using pictures and he he says, "Okay, I want you to remember your baptism when you were baptized." And this is this is why we immerse in baptism and use that form of baptism. It's because of the pictures here in Romans 6 and elsewhere in scripture. Baptism is a picture of what happened to you inside, things you can't see. Okay? So he says, "Just like you were immersed in water. And so, you know, sometimes when we baptize people, we'll say, as we take them down into the water, we say, buried with Christ in baptism. We get that from Romans 6 here. And then what? Raised to walk in newness of life. So the first part of that is buried with Christ. Okay, you died with Him, you're buried with Him spiritually. It's a picture of what happened spiritually to you. The point is, we were united with Christ. And this is one of Paul's favorite doctrines, the in Christ. And we've talked about that a lot in Ephesians, and we're going to talk about it a lot more, okay? Because Paul loves that, talking about us in Christ. So you you picture Christ as this sphere, you know, or in the baptism uh, illustration, like the the water. So you think about our, our... our fancy, you know, baptistry. And and so the water in that, and you picture the water as Christ, and we are baptized, we are placed, we are immersed into Christ. And he uses the word here, into, and that describes it, okay, now, now, now I know baptism is showing two things, but when we're placed into Christ, we don't ever come out of Christ, Okay. So being raised to walk, you see, that's that's a, a, a second thing that baptism is picturing. So there's really two pictures there. And we're gonna we're gonna develop that a little bit as we go through here. Okay. So because we are in Christ, he says that we died with Christ. Remember, so what happens spiritually is that if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, even though you weren't born yet, what happened to you spiritually is that when Christ was on that cross, you were in Him. And then when they buried him, so when he died, you died. And then when they buried him, they buried you, okay, spiritually speaking. That's what he's talking about. So because we're in Christ, we were we died with him, we're buried with him, we're also raised with him. And there was purpose to our being raised. He doesn't raise us up and just say, okay, now you've got your ticket to heaven, you're good, I'll see you, you know, at the end of your life and we'll let you in. It's not that at all. There's a purpose to us being raised. It is so that we might walk in newness of life. Okay? So there's that idea of walking. Ephesians is going to develop that in chapters 4 through 6. We're going to spend a lot of time on. It it, it has to do with living out 
this new quality of life. And that's what happens at regeneration. So whenever, you know, picture yourself in, when you're baptized and you come up out of the water, it's like you came back to life. You were raised from the dead. That's the picture. And now you have a new quality of life. The old you died. And the new you was raised. Okay? And so that you, but it's raised with a purpose so that you will walk with this new quality of life. That's what regeneration does. That's what new life does. Being given new life. We will live in entirely new ways. Let that sink in. We will live in entirely new ways. So, Shall we continue in sin? No. We are in union with Christ. Number two. Our slavery to sin is over. Verses six and seven. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him, that our body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. Why? For he who has died is freed from sin. So, our old self, the old us, was a slave to sin. The only way to break that slavery is for us to die. And he'll develop that in the first part of chapter 7. Okay? So, he uses marriage there. So, the only way for a woman to be freed from her husband is for him to die. And so, Paul is saying, you were a slave to sin. Only our death could break that slavery. And, and literally, when it says freed here, literally, it's justified from that is, from the penalty of sin. We're back to the Romans 5, that we were declared righteous. So, I ask again, shall we continue in sin? No. Our slavery to sin is over. Number three. Jesus' death and resurrection broke sin's power, enabling us to live. Verses 8 through 10. His death and resurrection broke sin's power, enabling us to live. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again, death no longer is master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. So sin can no longer control us. Its dominion over us has been broken. Jesus' death rendered sin powerless, and His resurrection makes us free to live. Actually live. We're free now to live. We were not free to live before. We were only free to obey sin, as we're going to see in the second part of this chapter. And by the way, if you're visiting with us and you're wondering, wow, we're covering an awful lot of Scriptures, I wonder if, is this true every time? No, it's not. <clears throat> it's quite the opposite, right? So usually we do one and may, we may spend two or three weeks on one verse, but <clears throat> we're covering a lot. But <clears throat> I wanted to do that because I wanted to pull all of what we've been talking about in this short series, or, or it's sort of short, right? You know, five, five now, so. Um, but pulling it all together, <clears throat> so we'd see what is it that the Christian life is about? What's the point of all of this? And And so... We're seeing here that we're free now to live. So shall we continue in sin? No. Jesus' resurrection enables us to live. Number four. 
Realize that you've died to sin and are alive to God. You have died to sin and you are alive to God. Verse 11. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. What he's saying is, I want you to trust that what God is saying is true. So you think about Romans 5, what I've said so far in Romans 6. Trust in it. Meditate on it. Call it to mind. You need to realize what has happened to you. And then stand confidently on it. Now, John Stott suggests that we look at our life, the whole of our life, as in two different volumes. Volume 1 and Volume 2. Volume 1 is your old life up to the point of being buried with Christ. So again, go back to that picture of baptism. So it's your life up to the point where you are buried with Christ in baptism. Okay, that's volume one. All right. Volume two is your new life that begins at your spiritual resurrection. So then when, and again pictures, when you are pulled up out of the water, you're raised to walk in newness of life. That is a picture of volume two starting. Volume 2 is now opened, okay? Volume 1 closed when we when you buried you with Christ, if you will, okay? And then when you're raised, that's volume 2. <clears throat> Again, let this sink in. Volume 2 should read very differently from volume 1. Do you get that? Volume 2 should read very differently from volume 1. If you look at volumes 1 and 2 of your life and you review those and you say, you know, they're, they're pretty much the same. Volume 2 is a little bit better, but, you know, there's, there's not that much change. Then you're, you're missing what Paul is trying to say. And so, <clears throat> Stott goes on to say this. We have to keep saying to ourselves, volume 1 has closed. You are now living in volume two. You're to say that to yourself. Self, you're not, you're now living in volume two. It is inconceivable that you should reopen volume one. He says it's not impossible because how often do we open, reopen volume one, start living like we're in volume one? He said it's not impossible, but it is inconceivable. It's absurd to think that it's okay for you to go back and live in volume one. So, ask again, shall we continue in sin? No. We have died to sin and we are alive to God. Now, the third thing that Paul does in this first part of Romans 6 is this. He provides instructions for living out our union with Christ. Verses 12 through 14. He provides instructions for living out our union with Christ. First, do not let sin reign in your bodies. Verse 12. Therefore, he says, do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey its lust. Now, by mortal body here, he's not talking about just this body that we have, the flesh and blood that we have. It's not just that. That's part of it, but that's not the whole of it. What he's talking about is what's left over from our old self. Sometimes Paul will call it our flesh. It it is the, the spiritual aspect behind 
this. So, so we don't ever want to go into that error or doctrinal error that says, well, the body's bad and the soul, spirit is good kind of thing. That's wrong. Okay, you're, you are a whole unit. Body and soul, <clears throat> apart from Christ, sinful. After come to know Christ, then you are declared righteous, but you still do sin, and that's what he's addressing here. This is the part of you that is tempted, that leftover part from the old self. And it includes, yes, our bodies, but also our, our minds. You see, so that that's what he's getting at here when he says your mortal bodies. And I, I thought about this this morning. I, when I was in um, junior high and high school, I was in 4-H club, and we had to memorize, you know, this... Our motto, basically, but the four H's were head, heart, hands, and health. Okay, and that's kind of what the idea behind what he's getting at. It's all the parts of you by which you might, and of course, in four H, we were supposed to to serve, right? And and so all the parts of you that either can do bad things or do good things, those parts. That's what he's talking about here. And he's going to develop that here with another term in just a minute. In this next verse. <clears throat> so number two, stop putting your abilities into the service of sin. Stop putting your abilities into the service of sin. The first part of verse 13. He says, and do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. So these members are all of the our abilities that I was just talking about there. Okay, the abilities to do evil or the abilities to do good, all the things, you're, you're, who you are and all the parts of you, if you will. And the verb for present, he says don't present them to that, refers to putting someone or something into service. And so, so a person who decides to go into the military, what they do is they put themselves into the service of that country, but in more particularly that particular branch of the military. Okay, they put themselves. They say, "Okay, you know, you don't go in and say, well, you can have my right arm, okay, but the rest of me is going to do what I want.' And then, no, you can try that if you want, but I promise you, what will happen is they're like, "No, we get all of you, and I mean all, all, all." Okay. Things that you didn't even know were parts of you. We're going to take all of that and we're going to put it into service. Okay, And so that's what he's talking about. He says, don't put into service all of these abilities of yours. Put them into the service of unrighteousness. Don't, don't put them into the service of sin. That is his point. Stop putting your abilities into the service of sin. Then the flip side. Instead of that, do this. Number three, put your abilities into the service of righteousness. Okay, the rest of verse 13. But present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. So deliberately put your abilities into the service of righteousness. And your abilities here, your members... Think serving, thinking, planning, you know. And in your serving, there has to be uh, first the, the motive that I'm going to serve and have the right motive. But then thinking, okay, how am I going to serve? What am I going to, how am I actually going to make this meal to take to, you know, this family? You know, how am I going to, so you're using your mind. But then you have to use your hands and your muscles and things like that to serve. And so 
all of you, all of the, the serving, planning, everything, which boils down to, if you will, obeying, because God tells us to do those things in serving one another. Number four, understand that sin isn't your master because you are under grace. Verse 14, for sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. So, what he's been saying is that Christ defeated our sin, and so it no longer has dominion over us. And when he says you're not under law, he's, he's saying you're not under the law of Moses anymore. We've, we've dealt with that in this series already. We're not under the law of Moses as a covenant. Remember that phrase? You've got to have that in there, as a covenant. Because the Bible always takes the law as a whole. It is a covenant. And remember the New Testament, as well as the Old, but especially the New says, you break one of them, you've broken the whole thing. Okay, so as a covenant, we're not under it. Now, I know some people abuse this verse. And they try to make it say things that Paul did not mean it to say. They're saying, see, we're not under any kind of law. He didn't say that. I mean, that goes against the whole argument, everything that he's saying in this chapter and elsewhere. We're not under the law of Moses as a covenant. We are under the new covenant of grace. The new covenant of Christ. The law of Christ. The grace of Christ enables us to obey God's laws. And I decided to, to throw this in this morning as I was reviewing. And you know, We believe in sovereign grace. Okay? Sovereign grace. Okay? Maybe if you've been around very long here, you've heard that term. Different groups use it. It was originally used, you know, Spurgeon and others, right? Sovereign grace. It's not, you know, wimpy grace. That's the way some people think of it. The legalists think of grace as wimpy because, oh, we got to bring the law in to make sure you obey and that you do. The antinomians think grace is wimpy because then we can resist it. And so the other thing I thought of is, we also believe in irresistible grace. I mean, don't we? Now, some people say, well, in salvation it's irresistible, but what? It's the same grace. Well, I know what happens is you think that, well, you know, yesterday I sinned. And so I was able to resist grace. No, uh uh-uh. Grace had not determined at that point to make you do good. When grace determines that you're going to do good, trust me, you're going to do good. Grace is irresistible. God does allow you to sin. But you're not resisting His grace. Because whenever He sets forth His grace, and a lot of times you think about, you know, it was this way in salvation and justification and... Is this way in sanctification? You know, you're like, you know, every time such certain scenario happens, I sin. And then this time you don't. Why? Grace kicked in. Grace will have its effect. When God sets forth his grace, it will have its effect. You can't resist it. Okay? 
And so it should not scare us. You know, it's funny, Christians who believe in the sovereignty of God read verse 14 and that scares them. Not under law, but under grace. Oh, now how are we going to keep our kids, you know, from disobeying? How are we going to keep Christians from disobeying? Because we're under grace. Okay, and this this thought occurred to me too this morning. I didn't put it on the slide, but think about the two covenants. The old covenant and the new covenant. We've been contrasting throughout all of this. Why was the old covenant put to an end? Why did God replace it with the new? And here's, I'll ask another question. How capable was the old covenant to make you obey? Zero ability. It did not have the ability. It had no power. It had plenty of power to condemn you. It had plenty of power to show us God's character. It had plenty of power to show us what God's righteous standards are. But it had zero power to change us. It had zero power to make us obey. And so it had to be the new covenant. Think here again, Ezekiel thirty-six twenty-seven, where it says, and God says, in the new covenant, and I will cause you to walk in my statutes and to be careful to keep my ordinances. That is sovereign grace. That is the new covenant. If we understand the new covenant, if we understand sovereign grace, then verse 14 should not scare us at all. Because if grace has actually begun in a person's life, they will, according to God's timetable, they will grow in that grace. Okay? Now, that, that part was free, so I added that. Now, part two of Romans 6. And this will go faster because it's a lot more straightforward. And he's really just developing the idea that he has just laid out that in verse 14 about sin being a master over you. So, part two is this. Being freed from sin's power, we must serve righteousness. Verses 15 to 23. And what Paul does, just like he did in the first part, is he objects to the antinomian misapplication of grace. Verse 15, after saying, you're not under law but under grace, he goes, what then? Shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? May it never be. Now, as I said, some people think that verse 14 is teaching that we're not under any kind of law. Well, they need to go read 1 Corinthians 9.21. Paul says, I'm, it's not that I'm without the law of God, but I am under or actually in lawed to Christ. I'm under the law of Christ. I am subject to its authority now. Okay, We are under law. It's the law of Christ. Again, we're not under the law of Moses' covenant. We're under grace, the law of Christ, if you will. And grace replaces sin with obedience. That's what grace does. As it works in your life bit by bit, it replaces sin. It, it gets it out of there. And as you can think here, Romans 4, we're going to talk about that a lot. It replaces sin with obedience. And then the next thing that he does, and this will wind us up, uh, 
Paul instructs us on living out our new slavery to God, verses 16 to 22. He instructs us on living out our new slavery to God. There's, again, four points, and there's three sets of four points. Don't blame me. That's Paul. So you ask him when you get to heaven. Number one, remember the nature of slavery, verse 16. Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness? So he says when you put yourself into service to someone or something, sin, you become its slave. He says remember the nature of slavery. This is what happened. Slavery to sin brings death. Slavery to obeying God brings righteous living. Number two, remember that your slavery has changed, praise the Lord, verses 17 and 18. But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. You've been set free from your old slavery to sin. And now you are slaves of righteousness. And we don't have time to develop this, but that slave of righteousness, I mean, it's not that you now obey grudgingly. Well, I'm a slave to doing good, so I've got to do good. It's not that at all. Because he used the phrase in there, from the heart, your heart now wants to obey. But your heart so wants to obey that it voluntarily is a slave of righteousness. Number three, put your abilities into service as slaves of righteousness. Verse 19, I'm speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification. So what he's saying is that when you give in and you use your abilities to serve sin, it's going to make it harder next time to resist, isn't it? You found that to be true, I'm sure. But he says it's different when you think about putting yourself in service to righteousness. It results in sanctification. Now, doing good works does not make you more holy, but as you become more holy, you will do more good works. And that will then encourage more holiness. You'll desire more holiness. And then as you become more holy, you will do even more good works. It is a blessed cycle, isn't it? And that is what he's trying to exert us with. Number four. Take seriously the drastic difference between two outcomes. Verses 20 to 23. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. You were a slave of sin, so you couldn't do righteousness. You didn't have to worry about it, even though you were under the penalty of the law for it. Therefore, what benefit were you then deriving from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the outcome of those things is death. But now, having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit, resulting in sanctification, and the outcome, eternal life. Four, the wages, the paycheck for sin, is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. If you go on sinning without a fight, it means you probably haven't been saved. 
If there is no sanctification, then there was no justification. It's it's that simple. That's why Paul ends here. He says, you want to pursue this antinomian path? And you say being a disciple is optional? And you don't ever grow in Christ? You don't ever obey from the heart? If I don't see any sanctification, Paul says, then there was no justification. You have not actually been declared righteous. You've been playing a game. New life, by its very nature, will certainly produce sanctification. By its very nature, new life will produce sanctification. That results in obeying God more and more. You see, so there is a necessary connection between salvation by grace through faith, which produces regeneration, new life. That new life then is a new life. It's a life of obedience. It's a life of of growing in sanctification. There's a necessary connection there. It's not a disjointed thing the way Zane Hodges tried to have it, where you, you could have, you know, you could be a Christian, but you don't ever obey. But then, you know, maybe you say, hey, I really want rewards. And this is what he says. Then I'm going to be a disciple, too, and I'm going to obey. No, there's a necessary connection between them. You can't divorce Romans 5 from 6, 7, and 8. Okay, so in in the middle of chapter 3, verse chapter 4, chapter 5 is about salvation, justification, and 6, 7, and 8 are, that's the results of justification. As Murray said, the, the sanctifying results of justification. Well, earlier, we learned that because of these truths, we will live in entirely in entirely new ways. Is your life right now different from your old life? Is volume two different from volume one? And I mean drastically different. I don't mean perfect, but drastically different. Well, yeah, you know, I have to look pretty hard to see a difference. Well, you need to take this to heart. It should be drastically different. Growing, yes. We're on different timelines with God. God has us on different... Some of us are going to grow real fast at times. And others, maybe it's a little slower, but it's not going to be nothing. Okay? It's not going to be hard to find. As we come to the Lord's table, think about the cross. When you think about the cross, one of the things that you should think sometimes on is this, that we died with Christ, in Christ. So when you picture in your mind, you come to the Lord's table and you think about His death, which is what we're supposed to think about. And you think about Jesus on the cross, dying. There should be times where you remember, oh, you know what? Paul said in Romans 6 that I died in Christ. So it's like I was spiritually in Christ when he was hanging there on the cross, dying. And he died. And what's the result of that? And the Lord's table should have a sanctifying effect on us. We should remember when we think about the cross and we think about how we died in him that he broke sin's power. He broke sin's dominion. I don't have to sin anymore. 
Now I'm free to obey. That should have a sanctifying effect on us.